So we are in Daniel 7. My question for you as we begin, if you could know the future, would you want to? If I could know the future, that could be in some ways beneficial. I mean, it could help me to prepare, could help me to make some investments maybe. Uh, If I could know the future, that could be really handy to know. But what if the future showed you something that was difficult? What if you could know in the future that maybe next year something difficult or bad would be happening to you? Would you want to know ahead of time? How many would not want to know ahead of time? I just want to take it as it comes. I don't want to spend the next nine months worrying about it because that's what I would do. If I knew it was coming, I'd try to fix it or worry about it or change it and probably ruin the whole thing. So it's hard to think about, well, we want to know the future and how would we handle it? What good would it do us? Would it be beneficial? Would it not? Daniel doesn't have a choice. In Daniel 7, Daniel learns from God about the future. And because he learned it, and then he wrote it down for the people that he was ministering to in the midst of the Babylonian empire. Then we read it now, more than two centuries later, uh, 2,600 years later, let's say. And now we know the future. Because for some of us, what Daniel saw was in the past. And some of the things he talks about are in the past now, but some of the things he talks about are still future. So Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. Daniel, the vision is very graphic, very visual, very descriptive, very prophetic language. So Daniel 7 doesn't take us forward in a chronology of the life of Daniel. If you look right there in verse 1, we're given the timing in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So if you were around for Daniel 6, you remember that we ended up with Daniel and Darius the Mede in the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the empire after Babylon. Belshazzar was the last sort of king of Babylon, and we dealt with him in chapter 5. So we're seeing the first six chapters were a unit dealing with the actions or the activities, the events of Daniel's life. And now, in seven on to the end, we get the visions that he had in his life. So we're not going chronologically. Actually, Belshazzar takes us backwards in time to the Babylonian Empire. So just so you know, don't be expecting this to be chronological. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. We're used to seeing Daniel interpret other people's dreams. It was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was the handwriting on the wall. It was the different things that were seen. And Daniel would be called on to interpret. But now it's Daniel having a dream of his own that God gives right to Daniel. He has this dream and visions of his head while he's on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So what you're going to read is not a word for word, event for event description of what Daniel saw. It doesn't tell you everything. He just writes down the main things for you to know and for the people of his time to know. Remember, he's writing in the context of a displaced and captive Jewish people under a foreign empire. And this is written, God speaking to Daniel for him to share with the people that he's ministering to. The other interesting thing about this before we go on is that under Belshazzar, Remember, Daniel had been real significant for Nebuchadnezzar and become one of his primary counselors. But under Belshazzar, that was the party animal guy who ends up throwing this big party and getting drunk. Everybody gets drunk with him in the lead. Daniel was nowhere to be found. Daniel had been sort of relegated to the dugout, wasn't being utilized fully. But as the song said, even when we don't see that he's working, we know that he's working. 
So at that time, Daniel, his life and ministry may not have been as active as he wanted, but God was still speaking to him, teaching him, preparing him for what would come next in his life and the life of the people he was ministering to. That's the setting. Verse two says, so Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. He begins to describe what he saw. The four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, not the Atlantic, not the Pacific. What would be the great sea? To to someone who grew up in Israel, the Mediterranean Sea. He sees this big body of water being stirred up, choppy from the wind. And verse three tells us that four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. That's got to hurt. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Artists have read Daniel 7 and done their best to give a visual interpretation of Daniel 7. You see there the lion with the eagle's wings. The interesting thing about this is God could have just said, Daniel, I saw Nebuchadnezzar coming up out of the sea. He could have just told plainly, but he doesn't. He uses these vivid pictures, these vivid language. And I think that God wants to touch you, not just intellectually. I think all this is meant to touch you emotionally as well. I think you're meant to not just read it and hear it, but to feel it. How many of you have ever seen a movie because of what was presented in the movie, the way it was visually presented, it touched you deeply? And even if you knew about it, then you watch a documentary and it changes things for you, becomes real. How many of you have ever seen The Passion of the Christ? So we can read about the crucifixion and all that Jesus goes through, but when you see it, it's disturbing. It touches you deeply. I like personally The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you guys ever seen that C.S. Lewis book turned into a movie, the scene where Aslan, the lion, just as he's being killed by all the crazy-looking beasts representing demonic forces, it's a dark scene, and they begin to shave his mane. And that, to me, you just feel the shame of the cross as Aslan is just ridiculed and shaved and humiliated. So God paints pictures for your imagination because he wants you to understand about the kingdoms of the earth. That's a little bit of a spoiler alert. That's what these things are about. But right now we're just getting the pictures. So verse five, and suddenly another beast. This is the second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. That's interesting, a lopsided bear and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It had just eaten. And they said to it, In the dream, arise, devour much flesh. Something a little unique about this one. This is given a command. This bear is commanded to devour a lot. Verse six, after this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So whoever this beast is, it didn't take charge itself. It was given dominion. It was given ruling power. But now we're talking like mutant animals here, aren't we? It's like nuclear fallout animals, four-headed leopard with four wings. Interesting. Put this in your pocket for later. Leopard is only half as fast as a cheetah. Still fast, but really known for their extreme adaptability. One article said leopards are good swimmers, excellent climbers, and they hunt in a wide variety of prey. 
A leopard's diet can include anything from insects to fish and reptiles, as well as grazing animals. They're happy to scavenge a meal as well as to hunt one. So number one about leopards, they're adaptable. Number two about leopards, they're stealthy. They hunt and kill and eat quickly and quietly. So before we go on to the fourth beast that's pictured here, do you see something in common about the three we've just talked about, other than they're all kind of weird mutations of animals? What kind of animals are they? They're predatory. So Daniel, when he has his vision, God doesn't give him a vision of, well, and I saw a meadow. And out of the meadow came four colorful flowers. The first was like a rose. And I watched as the petals of the rose. No, it's not flowery language at all. It's not a vision of peaceful, gentle animals. I saw out of the prairie coming up a little rabbit hopping along nicely. Not an antelope or a wildebeest or a gazelle. None of these kind of animals make it into the vision. It's bears and leopards and lions. Oh my, no tigers. You do understand that I gave you the spoiler alert and that these do, we'll learn, represent human governments, human empires. And notice, if you look at human empires from God's standpoint, he says, even if they start good, they eventually devolve into beastly organisms. They're human beings that prey on other human beings for their own advancement, for their own sustenance. The kingdoms of men are consuming and aggressively feed on the weak for their own power and ambition and expansion. That's how God is seeing the human kingdoms he's going to talk about here. So now the fourth beast. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. I mean, I have a friend that has a German shepherd that thankfully she keeps behind a fence when I come because that thing, when it barks at me, when I show up at this house, I mean, the teeth are bare and it's scary. Now that's little tiny white teeth. You know, I'm thinking big, great, big beast, dreadful beast with iron teeth. This is a scary creature. And it was devouring. That's what you do with big iron teeth and breaking or crushing in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. So we're introduced to this fourth beast. Notice what's missing. There's nothing to compare it to. Doesn't seem to fit any comparison to any predatory animal that could be described. Just a horrifying, destructive description. Dreadful, terrible, strong. Daniel notices particularly the iron teeth. Now the illustrator pictures it like what? Like a dinosaur of some sort, like a T-Rex kind of thing. Some huge, nasty looking animal. But that's just an artist's representation because there's no description for us given other than the qualities of this big beast. But it's actively doing something when it's described. Daniel notices what it's doing. It is devouring. As it goes, it devours everything in its path and it crushes whatever remnant is left on the ground. It tramples over as it walks. This is like something out of Godzilla. So verse eight says, I was considering the horns and there was another horn Remember, there's 10 horns coming up out of the head and a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. That's got to hurt. You know, I've never had a tooth pulled, but I can imagine that would be bad. But horns are part of the bone structure. 
to this three horns get plucked out as this one horn, this little horn sprouts up. And in this horn, talk about a freaky vision, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, my wife and I, some of you know, we have a little farm and we have goats. If I go outside and I look at my goat and my goat has a horn with eyes and a mouth, I'm running. I'm going to go back inside and go back to sleep. Can we agree this is a strange picture? But this is prophetic language. It's trying to describe something to Daniel that will evoke a vision and an imagination and emotion. So he gets distracted by looking at these horns and he sees this little scene play out on top of this beast's head. Now, picture before we get to verse 9, that's where we leave it. The curtain drops as Daniel's watching. And then as the curtain rises, there's a new scene. The vision has moved from earth, picturing a beast devouring and wings being plucked and all that stuff. Now we move to a vision of heaven. Verse 9 says, I watched till thrones were put in place. Not singular, plural, thrones. There's two, at least two. Thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. I asked in the first service, who do you think the ancient of days is? And of course, if you don't know the answer, you're always safe with Jesus. And that's a good answer, but it's the wrong answer for this. The ancient of days is God the Father, eternally existent one. That's one of the hardest things for us to comprehend is eternal existence. Because we go back and say, well, God created everything. And then we say the natural question is, well, then who created God? See, because we think with a finite mind and things have to begin and things have to end because that's the world we live in. That's the reality we experience. But that's not God's reality. God has no problem being eternally existent. It's just us that can't figure that out. He is the great I am. He always has been. So when we ask the question, well, who made God? That's a moot point. It's not a valid question because God is defined as the one who is eternally existent. He's always existed. So go home and ponder that at lunchtime. The ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow, which speaks of righteousness or purity. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame that speaks of judgment or a purifying fire. And its wheels, a burning fire. Now, we move from animal descriptions to really more of a human description. We can understand someone who's wearing a garment that's white, hair, a head, all white, then a throne, a fiery throne and wheel. So it's like a mobile throne. You know how the Pope has the Pope mobile? You put the Pope in the Pope mobile. Well, God has a mobile throne. There's wheels on it, like a chariot, like his royal chariot. And what you're seeing described is the throne of God. And as God enters the picture, he's seated on this throne, on one of the thrones. And the vision continues. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. I don't know what that's got to be like. A thousand thousands, that's a million, ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's a hundred million. So you get the picture that it's just an innumerable number that he's seeing in this vision. This is called the heavenly host. Heavenly host is just the heavenly armies. It's the heavenly council. All those around the throne of God in heaven, there's thousands, it's thousands of millions that are there. And the court was seated. By the way, when we say the Lord of hosts, what we mean is the Lord of armies. 
So God, and sometimes is pictured as a general who oversees the heavenly armies of heaven. So he's seated and court is in session and the books were open. I don't know if you've ever had occasion to go to the courthouse down here in Fluvanna or to be in court for some purpose or reason, but man, it's a heavy feeling in court, isn't it? You got to wear the right clothes. You can't speak at the right time. You got to stand up or sit down at the right time. There's a heaviness of the authority that's there. And that's just in our little 26,000 people Fluvanna County court. Imagine that sense as God, the ancient of days. This is as real as the parking lot that you parked your car in. It's as real as the sanctuary that we're sitting in now. God dwelling on the heavenly throne, overseeing all of the workings of the universe from that place, including everything that's happening on planet earth. The court seated and he opens the books, just like the bailiff brings the notes and things are opened and God has record books. So God opens these books and it must be somehow books connected to human government or human activity, righteousness and those types of things. For anyone that's ever said, if I was in charge, things would be different. They might be different. They wouldn't be better. Isn't it funny how we can be great armchair quarterbacks? We watch the news and we want to say, oh, if people would just listen to me, the world would be different. No, it wouldn't. That's a delusion. We would make just as much a mess of it as everybody else has made. If the Democratic Party was in charge, then no, it wouldn't. If the Republican Party, no, be careful. Be careful. Every human government eventually devolves into a man-eating beast. I watched, Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Imagine if God was listening into you as you watch the news and talk about those things, how you would change the world, the pompous words, the arrogance. Do you see the contrast, the power and the presence of God sitting on the real throne versus this arrogant little horn speaking all these pompous words? I think about what does God see when he looks at us and listens to us sharing and waxing wise about our opinions of what we would do if we were in charge of the church or if we were in charge of the county or if we were in charge of the United States. And if people were follow me, I got a hard enough time with like the man in the mirror. So anytime you see proclamations of greatness, arrogance, pompousness, listen for the hiss of the serpent. Remember, we've been studying together. We've watched when Nebuchadnezzar spoke pompous words. God took him down. God has a very real response to pride. And we're going to see that response in this chapter. It's nothing new. God responds to pride with destroying pride. He responds to humility with elevation. You can humble yourself. I was just reading the story, the parable in the Bible about Jesus when he's invited to the Pharisee's house and they're all there eating and He tells the story of someone who comes to a feast and sits and presumes to sit in the best seat. And then the head of the party has to come over and say, "Uh, excuse me, that's not your seat. You need to go sit over there. It's like, oh, someone who took the best seat had to be demoted. But if you come into the party and you assume and you sit in the worst seat, you sit in a low place, then the master of ceremonies comes over to you and says, hey, you can sit up here at the head table. That's how God is telling you he responds to humility. Take the low spots. Take the worst job. Clean the toilets. Do the lowest thing and watch as God elevates. 
I watched because the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain. The whole beast slain. And its body destroyed and given to the burning flames. So this beast, of which the little horn was part, the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, found guilty and judged, slain, killed. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. It had been given to them. It was God's to give, and God takes it away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Every one of these world leaders had a chance. See, what this takes us back to is the Garden of Eden, where God ruled and reigned over earth alongside of Adam and Eve. He gave them dominion, didn't he, over the earth? And then they chose with their dominion. Eve was deceived by Satan and Adam rebelled. And God removed them from their quote-unquote thrones of ruling with him in the garden. And ever since, God has been waiting and waiting. And really, he knows. He's letting us learn. We have to learn that our hope for all of human history, every hope in human government has failed. Because you, we, were meant to rule and reign with God through Christ. So Christ is the one that fulfills, that does, takes the place of what Adam and Eve undid in the garden. No human has been able to do that. God has given human a chance to reclaim the dominion over the earth that was lost by Adam, and it's never been done. There's never been a humble, sacrificial, sustained government. The biggest and best of humans' ability to rule always ends up being destructive to humanity itself because people are people. So there's this power void now. The beast is destroyed. All the other ones lose their dominion. There's this empty throne. Who will sit on it? Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. What a scene in heaven. I mean, there's the ancient of days, his fiery chariot, streams of fire issuing out from the throne. There's this empty throne that is there. And who's going to fill it? Who's going to co-rule with God? And all of a sudden, one like the son of man. Now that's really interesting. And it's super important. You know what one title that Jesus never uses of himself? If you read the gospels, he never calls himself the Christ. Other people do. Christ is Messiah. It's not his last name. He never refers to himself that way. The predominant name or nickname that Jesus uses for himself in the Gospels, 81 times in the Gospels, is Son of Man. And he'll correct people. They call him Messiah. He says, the Son of Man. You read it. You pay attention as you read. 81 times. The number one way he refers to himself. And do you know why he's doing that? Any Jew... This is why it's not really so much the epistles. You don't see Jesus referred to as the son of man very often. He's Lord, he's master. But in the gospels, especially to the Jewish mind, that meant something. Any Jew who heard son of man would go right back to where? Daniel 7. Jesus was connecting himself to this one like the son of man. This is really, it's in Aramaic, by the way, reading what was been written in Aramaic from chapter 2 to chapter 7, is all in Aramaic. We connect right back to here, and Jesus is connecting himself to the Son of Man, really means, it's not a term we use so often, so it's not familiar to us, but it's sort of be like someone who identifies with humanity. 
a human. It's really mankind. Someone who originates with comes out of mankind. Now again, Jesus, fully God and fully man. This is the, the mystery of Christ, fully man. So he comes to earth, takes on the likeness of human flesh, Paul tells us, so he can then be ushered into his kingdom to be the son of man that co-rules with God and we rule with him. It's a crazy picture, hard to imagine. Look what happens. Then to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, or ethnicities, all languages should serve or worship or bow down before him. Has anybody ever said to you, why do you Christians want to take your religion and force it on people from other nations? I mean, every nation has its religion. You know, the, the Muslims are there in the Middle East and you've got Hinduism and Buddhism, different places, and just leave them alone. Christianity is an American thing, not according to the Bible. And it's not that we're to force Christianity on people, but we ought to let them know that the God who they were meant to serve and to worship is the God of the Bible, not the demonically oriented, destructive, producing false gods that so many around the world worship. To him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's not going to get assassinated. He's not going to get voted out. He's not up for election. Thank God for that. Which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. What you're witnessing is the heavenly coronation of King Jesus. Do you know what topic Jesus talked about more than any other topic when you hear him talk in the Gospels? Most people usually say love. That's a good guess. Gospel of John, he does talk a lot about love. But in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, overwhelmingly, Jesus talks about one topic. You know what it is? The kingdom of God. He was consumed with telling people about his father's kingdom. The first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark are the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 20, when James and John, their mom comes to Jesus and said, hey, I want my boys to rule with you when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, you don't understand what you're asking. They have that argument and the other guys find out that these two wanted this place of priority and they begin having this discussion about who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus gives this wonderful teaching. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And these kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, these are Gentile kingdoms. You know that the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority, they're domineering over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. God's kingdom is different. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Isn't that what we see going on in our political system? All the ones that want to be great are all want to just serve everybody else. Somebody say, Steve, are you crazy? Yeah, that's not what we see. Everybody wanting to elevate themselves and they want to have the power and it's not the way it works. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Notice that? just as the son of man. Every time you read that, your mind's going to go right back to Daniel 7. He did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How does Jesus get to sit on that throne? Remember in the picture, he's coming on the clouds to the heavenly throne room. He's being ushered into his kingdom, into the throne. How does he get into that kingdom? How does that happen for him? It happens because he's rejected 
and crucified and killed and buried and resurrected, his crucifixion leads to his coronation. Isn't that crazy? That's why he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You guys can't comprehend this. It doesn't operate like this world's kingdoms operate. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. It's like he watched a horror movie. Have you ever done that? You watch a horror movie and you're watching it going, I shouldn't be watching this, but I can't turn it off. I'm strangely drawn to the horror. And then when you turn it off for the next three nights, every time you hear a noise, it's some guy with a chainsaw and a ski mask coming in to get you. You're just freaked out by it. Well, that's Daniel. He's freaked out by what he sees, this big giant beast with iron teeth that's devouring everything is emotionally disturbing. I came near to one of those who stood by me and asked him the truth of all this in this vision. What's this all about? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So here we go. Now we're going to learn what this dream is about. You've had a little bit of a spoiler, but now you get some of the details filled in. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So anytime God wants to draw a picture of humanity, the totality of humanity, it's pictured as vividly as the sea. So the great sea, these four beasts come out of the great sea. You've used the terminology. When you see an innumerable group of people, just a sea of bodies, just a sea of people, right? That's what that tends to picture or mean. So out of the sea or out of the earth, the sea of humanity comes, rise up these four kings. And it's interesting how that happens. Adolf Hitler just kind of rises up. How does that happen? And then Nebuchadnezzar just kind of rises to the surface. And I remember watching the debates four years ago when Donald Trump was running for president, thinking, how does this business guy named Donald Trump end up being the Republican nominee for president? And then he wins. And you go, how did that happen? He's a businessman. But he just sort of rises up. God raises one up and he puts another down. But now notice the specific identities are not revealed. It just says they're four kings. And that's where it's left for Daniel. And I'm going to not go into details here. It's very parallel to Daniel chapter two. I think you know the winged lion, the wings plucked off. He ends up standing up on his feet like a man and he's given the heart of a man. Who does that sound like? You know it from Daniel 2. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's the Babylonian kingdom. What about the lopsided bear? A bear that is at three ribs in his teeth and it's kind of looks like it needs to go to the gym or something. That's the Medo-Persian empire. The Medes and the Persians. The Persians ended up rising up above the Medes in that relationship. The four wings, four-headed leopard is who? Alexander the Great and the Grecian empire. When Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is dispersed to not his children, but four generals. We get the Seleucids and the Ptolemy dynasty comes from that. So his kingdom's dispersed like the four heads of the leopard, four generals take over his kingdom. And he is known for his adaptability and his stealthiness in warfare. So these are very intentional pictures. What about the scary iron tooth devouring beast? You remember the feet of Daniel chapter two, the statue with the feet of iron mixed with clay, the 10 toes. We see a comparison here. This is the Roman Empire. This is the empire into which Jesus was born, his first coming. Now, there were empires that existed after the Roman Empire. But Jesus came during that Roman Empire and his second coming, many say and interpret this to be that he will come back during what we would call a revived Roman Empire. 
again, the interesting thing is there's this 10 horns. So somehow this is a conglomerate leadership in that final world empire. Notice verse 18, and you'll understand this a little bit better. The saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Has this happened? Are we living in a Christian empire? Please say no. Tell me this isn't is Pinch me, somebody. So the vision goes from past, jumps all the way through 2,000 years of human history to the future, which we haven't seen yet, because this hasn't happened yet. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the 10 horns that were on his head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Daniel was still in the Babylonian empire when he has this vision. Hadn't seen Darius come in, doesn't know about Alexander the Great doesn't know about the Roman Empire, but he seems to not be concerned with those. He jumps right to that fourth beast. He says, I want to know about that beast. The 10 horns, the one horn, crazy stuff. He says, I was watching and that same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until, so there's a time frame, until the Ancient of Days came And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So what Daniel sees, as I asked you, do you want to know the future? Would you like to know? Do you think it's beneficial to know the future? What Daniel sees is horrifying. The future for planet Earth and human government is horrifying. There are some very difficult days coming for planet Earth. And it's going to be especially hard for anyone at that time who calls themselves a God-fearing Christian. Because whoever this little horn is, we know him as Antichrist. We'll get to that in a minute. He's going to make war against anybody that wants to serve God. And he's going to be successful. Just like Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt that way? Honestly? The people that are living on planet Earth at this time are going to feel that way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? They're going to be prevailing in this world government until, verse 22 says, God always has timing until judgment is made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and then they can possess the kingdom. Is this world right now a Christian kingdom? No, it's not. This is still yet in the future. And now we get the details of the fourth beast. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. It's different than every other kingdom that's ever existed and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. What Daniel is seeing is a vision of a worldwide empire in a way that has never really been possible until our day and age, with inventions that have come with technological advancements. How many of you would agree that our world is getting smaller? We know what's going on in Fluvanni County, Virginia, California, Italy, China. We know what's going on all over the world. We're instantly connected to everything that's worldwide. And we see that we now operate. Our world is uniquely tied together. Our economies are tied together. 
our manufacturing is tied together. We are as close as we've ever been to being a one world system. Even language, someone from first service who specializes in linguistics saying even language, languages are becoming more universal. Verse 24 says the 10 horns are 10 kings. So this conglomerate empire is going to have 10 kings that sort of initiate. It could be like the G10, like we have the G7 or the G8, some worldwide combination of dominating powers who then choose to rule, get into some kind of corroboration and rule together. And they're going to arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. But somehow this one that rises up, this antichrist picture as a little horn, is going to destroy three of them and take a prominent place in this worldwide empire. He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High. He's going to speak against God. Now, we've seen the spirit of Antichrist all throughout history. We've seen the spirit of a Babylonian government, government without God, human government without God. We've seen that coming through Hitler and all these other world leaders, Mussolini. But this Antichrist is going to be the culmination of all of the satanic power empowered by them and promoted by the false prophet. The Antichrist is the alternative to Jesus. Anti can mean opposed to or instead of. Hold on to that for a minute. He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High and persecute the saints of the Most High. Look at the next part. He shall intend to change times and law, and then the saints shall be given into his hand for time and times and half a time. I mean, just amassing judgment to himself by killing God's people. When judgment comes to those that have rejected God, there's going to be no argument at the throne of God. Like, hey, wait a second. God, I did this. I did that. God's going to say, look, number one, you rejected my son. And number two, you rejected my rule. And number three, look how you treated people. You rejected the only possibility for forgiveness and true power that you ever could have had. He'll seek to and change times and laws. I'm not going to get into detail just for the conscience of time. But when people rule, they seek to change calendars and events and timings of things. You know, there's Gregorian calendar. There's a Julian calendar. The interesting thing in Bethlehem, in Israel, is you go to the Church of the Nativity, there's like the Orthodox and the Catholic, and there's these different sects of Christianity that have different places that they can participate in their rituals there in the church nativity. And every so often around Christmas time, it gets really tense because they don't agree on when Christmas is because they have different calendars. One group follows the Gregorian calendar, the other the Julian calendar. So they all clean their own part of the church, and it's hysterical. You can Google it. Watch a YouTube video of these priests beating each other up with brooms in the middle of the church nativity. It's crazy. But different calendars, the Islamic calendar, did you know Islam has their own calendar? And they link time to, guess who? To Muhammad and when he made his move to Medina. So he'll change times and also law. Not locally, but worldwide. Imagine Islamic Sharia law ruling over planet earth. Some have said it's not terrorism we should be afraid of, it's Sharia law. Imagine the Nuremberg race laws of Hitler being institutionalized and enforced worldwide. Imagine laws that banned the use of Bibles, the worship of Christians worldwide. Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Now, here's a dangerous thing, and here's an interesting thing to think about for us. Anytime you look at laws being changed to oppose God's law, 
Again, listen for the hiss of the serpent. Behind that is satanic empowered human government. And we in our country have done it. We have taken the law of marriage that begins in Genesis. In the beginning, there's Genesis chapter one, and God sets down the rule for marriage because marriage is his institution. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's not very complicated. It's not like, I don't get that, God. Can you explain that again? It's pretty simple. But we in our country have changed the law. We said, God, we don't like your law of marriage. We're going to make our own. We're going to do marriage our way. And behind that is the Antichrist. Behind those types of sentiments and the changing of law. Am I telling you something you don't already know? Antichrist, again, not just opposed to God, but instead of God. So this Antichrist leader is not going to be a loser. He's going to be a smooth talker, diplomat. He'll tell people what they want to hear. He'll give people what they want. And then he'll come and devour them. Antichrist is what people get when they don't want the real Christ. Satan is always willing to give an alternative to Jesus. If you choose to follow Christ, you end up where Christ ends up, ruling and reigning. If you choose to follow Antichrist, there's no neutral in this spiritual battle over planet Earth. There's no neutral. There's no Switzerland. You're either for Christ or you're against him. And if you're against him, you'll end up into the rule and the reign of the Antichrist. And then you'll end up where he ends up. And where does he end up? Look at the next verse. The court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. It's like one verse. God said, ah, destroyed. And look how easy it is for God to destroy. I mean, a seven micron virus has paralyzed our world and our economy. And, you know, toss in a couple of hurricanes, a typhoon, some earthquakes, and maybe a comet. Why not? Just for good measure. And we're done. I mean, we're toast. We live on a Goldilocks planet where every condition is just right for us to exist. And God has made it that way. Scientists spend billions of dollars to prove that somehow, somewhere, there must be a planet that can sustain life like ours. And they can't figure it out because we just shouldn't be that unique, but we are. No problem for God to destroy any human kingdom. Then verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people. Not just any people, the saints of the most high. Has that happened yet? I ain't seeing that happen. No one's called me and asked me to be president. That's for sure. Or asked me to help rule and reign. No one's looking to me for suggestions about what to do. No one's looking to the Christians for how should we run planet Earth. So this is still yet in the future. There's some dark days coming. But on the other side of that, there's what we've always hoped for. And it's not a spiritual kingdom. It's a literal kingdom on planet Earth. The greatness of the kingdoms under the whole Earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Jesus will reign for a thousand years, co-reign with his people in a kingdom that enforces righteousness and truth and justice and will finally experience peace in a way that we've always only hoped for and dreamed of. Verse 28 says, this is the end of the account and most likely the end of your attention span as well. <laughs> All the people that are still awake laughed. <laughs> as for me, 
Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled or alarmed or frightened me, and my countenance, my cheerfulness changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. So that's where Daniel ends with this chapter. It wasn't a happy chapter for him. As we go through and we see Daniel's visions that God gives him, this heavy stuff he's got to deal with. This is not rose-colored glasses that he's looking at the world with. He sees the reality of the condition of our world and the future of our world. And getting that information, sometimes knowledge can be troubling, can it? It can be disturbing. And as Daniel pictures the people he loves and the world he knows and the future to come of devouring predatory governments, it's extremely troubling. Because Daniel, we've already proven, is a guy who's compassionate. He feels deeply for people and what they're going to experience, what we may experience. So it's alarming to him. It's troubling to him. It's heavy for him. So what do we do with all this? Now you know. Now you're stuck with it. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, man. Look, be reminded, Jesus is the king you have always hoped for. Your hope is not in the Democratic Party or Joe Biden. Your hope is not the Republican Party or Donald Trump. I don't know if I'm making anybody mad. I'm just speaking the truth because they're human beings. If you really want to put a sign on your lawn that promotes something, put a big sign on your lawn that says, Jesus is Lord. You know, we got to vote and we're supposed to pray for our king, for our president, whoever that is. That's all part of it. But ultimately, my ultimate allegiance, my ultimate heart is with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the only way I can stay sane in an insane world. It's the only way God's people, the people Daniel was writing to, could stay grounded at a time when they were captive in a foreign government that was devouring and satanic. Only way they could stay sound and stay sane. Don't be surprised when world government lets you down. Don't be surprised when it doesn't produce the righteousness you've always hoped for. Don't be surprised when it doesn't yield righteousness and justice like you've wanted. It can't. Understand human government is what it is. It'll always be flawed. It'll always be failed. And that hope you have for justice and righteousness and truth and sacrificial leaders, the one you're always looking for is the son of man, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Amen. Powerful chapter, huh?